Imagine knowing exactly what your students are learning and exactly which steps you need to take next. Join us in Down With The Reading Quiz to craft meaningful and productive formative assessments that move away from gotcha moments of basic recall and toward assessing what your students actually can do. In this 30-minute free masterclass, we'll share three powerful assessment keys that work for any novel at any time of the year. Head to shop.bravenewteaching.com slash masterclass to sign up, and we'll also send you a free workbook to keep track of all your notes. Once again, that's shop.bravenewteaching.com slash masterclass to nail formative assessments forever. Hey, Amanda. Hey, Marie. What are you up to later? Want to join me for happy hour? I'm all in. And guess what's amazing? Our listeners and friends of the podcast can also join us because Brave New Teaching Happy Hour has officially launched. Cheers. Cheers, everyone. We are officially hanging out a little bit longer after school with an extended extra private podcast feed just for you. Yes. Members of Happy Hour get extra 15 minutes of the podcast, give or take, because you know us, we run a little bit long. It's just kind of how we are. But if you would like to get in on this Happy Hour action, please join us. It is only $5 a month. Head to curriculumrehab.com slash happy hour and get yourself signed up because when you're there, Amanda, tell our friends what we do every month for our Happy Hour members. I think my favorite part is coming up with a new free resource for our listeners every month. And then we pretty much break down that resource and how to use it. We also like to have guests on to do extended episodes and even Q&A that's just for you about that resource. It's really exclusive and super private just for you. So if you are like us and you like hanging out, you like chit-chatting about all things that are teaching, teacher life, and everything under that umbrella, join us for happy hour and we will see you there. Bye. Bye. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back to Brave New Teaching. We have a actually pretty highly requested type of episode for you today. We are going to dig into some real nerdy stuff. We are going to get into some teaching strategies, specifically close reading, and a couple of passages, one from each of our classrooms, how we would teach that with the strategy of close reading. And you know we're excited to nerd out. So, you know, put on your party pants or hat or really just get ready. <laughs> this is a follow-up guys to episode number 11 when we did a close read leading <laughs> we did a close reading lesson focusing on syntax so we're going to change objectives here and zoom in on characterization which we know is something that everyone at every level is teaching and i think if you've ever moved grade levels or changed levels it's really a challenge to approach this skill with a new level of difficulty. So I hope that this episode brings you guys some new ideas and ways to hop into analyzing characterization. And friends, I have to give a quick disclaimer because you know this is a homegrown podcast. We might be hearing from my four-year-old at any given time here because it is the mommy show today. So I just wanted to throw out that disclaimer as she is currently knocking on the door. But I think we are ready to cue our intro music, aren't we? Let's go! Woohoo! listening to Brave New Teaching, a podcast for educators challenging the status quo. I'm Amanda, and I'm a high school English teacher in Illinois. 
And I'm Marie, and I'm also a high school English teacher in Southern California. We're so glad you're here. Enjoy the show. Let's hop in. So we're going to just kind of do a quick overview of just like the tenets of what we believe close reading should be all about in the classroom and uh, what how it can be helpful to you as an instructional strategy. Uh, we go over it, like we said, in more depth in episode 11, um, but we really have like three bullet points that are a checklist of why and how you could use it in your classroom. So if you're looking to teach an author's craft skill, close reading is a good way to go. If there's a thematic concept that you're trying to teach, close reading is a good way to go. And Oh, actually there's only two bullet points. The third bullet point is when you're ready to do it. So if it's one of those two things, your job now is to isolate a really small chunk of text that demonstrates that skill. We cautioned you guys in episode 11 that the biggest danger in close reading is to try to have kids close read too much. Have you ever done that, Marie? Like picked way too long of a passage? Oh, yeah, yeah. I've, I've done like a five-page passage and then like I couldn't understand why, why it was so hard for them to like come up with something to pinpoint why everything was on the first page. And then like after doing it with two different classes, I was like, a doy. That's why it's too much. Duh. It, it's too much. And close reading really is because you want to get a very narrow skill out of the kids in that one day. I know that sometimes for me, I, I want to trace an arc of something. That's why I usually pull too big of a passage, but that's just not the right type of lesson for that type of skill. So just kind of I'd say just weigh in your mind, like, what is it that you want to get out of it? And is close reading the right choice? Well, if it's a skill or a theme and you can get, a, get into it in maybe a paragraph or two, then it's definitely the right move and a great strategy to try. So let's go ahead and get started with an example from Fahrenheit 451. If you guys have never taught Fahrenheit, just a little context for you. In the story, the main character, Montag, is going through extraordinary change over the course of the novel. And so one of the common core standards back when that was a thing um, that we used to really focus on during this novel in particular was this idea of complex characterization. There's, there's a lot of complex to Montag's transformation. And that's really a useful character to use when teaching this standard. So the goal of the lesson today is to look at one of the big shifts that he makes from kind of this uh, ordinary guy doing what he's told, believing what he's told, and never really breaking any rules to all of a sudden breaking one of the biggest rules in their society, which is stealing a book. So the close read goal for today for my students, you listening right now, is that students will be able to explain how figurative language amplifies the changing complex characterization of Montag. So the reason I chose this passage is because it's very transformational for the character, but it's also accessible for students. There's not a lot of plot gunk that's going to get in the way. It's pretty straightforward. But at the same time, a lot of these details would definitely have been missed on a first read. And I always taught Fahrenheit with regular level or co-taught sophomores. So I'm not banking on the fact that I have terribly insightful, attentive readers. I have readers who do what they're told because they, I've been 
<laughs> telling them what to do for a long time. Um, but this is a passage that I think really would have been missed if we didn't stop to look at it. I also think that by zooming in on this moment, kids are going to see Montag in a new light, no matter how much they have or have not actually read. And that's really productive for our classroom. So here are some of the things that I notice in this passage. Um, and then I think you're going to hear when I read it to you, there is this beautiful personification of Montag's hand. I want you to listen for that. Um, I want you to listen for the repeated echo of this fire motif that's always going throughout the novel. The idea of fire and burning is repeated all throughout the story and especially in this scene. Um, and that would lead me to my third point that I want kids to notice and that I think is powerful is just the irony of the moment itself. So Montag is a fireman and his responsibility in this dystopian world is to burn down homes that have contraband and contraband would be books. And so in this scene, Montag is responding to a call to a home where a woman has a whole attic full of books and their job is to burn it down. And this woman will not move, will not step aside from her books. So there's a lot of panic. There's a lot of uh, commotion going on. And in the midst of all the commotion, uh, Montag actually steals a book. He takes one. Um, we find out later what kind of book it was. Um, but in the moment, it's very ironic that in the midst of a fire that he's started, he actually rescues a book uh, and, and takes it. And it's really, really cool how you see that, how that all happens. There's also some really powerful imagery uh, using this idea, a repeated image again from the beginning of the story of the death of a bunch of books. They're kind of fluttering to the ground um, like dead birds. And they talk about them being bird-like in the very beginning of the story as well. So this passage echoes things from the beginning, which is great for students because they're connecting things from what they've already learned. So hopefully you guys have got a feel for, there's a lot of reasons I have to pull just this one little passage. So let me read it to you guys so that you can hear it. You told us that you liked this in the last episode, so we're going to stick to the plan. So this passage goes like this. Books bombarded his shoulders, his arms, his upturned face. A book alighted almost obediently like a white pigeon in his hands, wings fluttering. In the dim, wavering light, a page hung open, and it was like a snowy feather, the words delicately painted thereon. In all the Russian fervor, Montag had only an instant to read a line, but it blazed in his mind for the next minute, as if stamped there with fiery steel. Time has fallen asleep in the afternoon sunshine. He dropped the book. Immediately, another fell into his arms. Montag, up here! Montag's hand closed like a mouth, crushed the book with wild devotion, with an insanity of mindlessness to his chest. The men above were hurling shovelfuls of magazines into the dusty air. They fell like slaughtered birds, and the woman stood below like a small girl among the bodies. Montag had done nothing. His hand had done it all. His hand, with a brain of its own, with a, conscious, a conscience and a curiosity in each trembling finger, had turned thief. Now it plunged the book back under his arm, pressed it, to, pressed it tight to sweating armpit, rushed out empty with the magician's flourish. Look here, innocent, look. And that's where I would end my close read. That is such a good passage. I mean, right? Right. <laughs> okay. It's so dripping. let's, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. and because I, I think, 
I think some of what makes this challenging and why it's so good to hear other teachers and how they would approach something like this kind of a close read is that it is so rich that you can get lost in the minutia, right? So I'm excited to hear how you approach this with, especially, I mean, I teach sophomores too, like a lot of sophomores, even the really strong readers are still reluctant because there's a certain amount of maturity in some of our kiddos that don't, they just don't want to approach something that's difficult. I'm not saying that as a blatant state, like blanket statement, not everybody, but you know, kids are kids. So talk, what do you do? <laughs> talk. talk. So I start this lesson with the end in mind. Shocker. You guys have never heard us say that before. Never. Um, <laughs> by the end of this lesson, I want my kids to be able to answer a question relative to how does the author use figurative language to amplify the complex characterization of Montag? So at this point, right, I'm assuming that we've already gone over complex characterization, right? We've been looking at Montag for a while. This is probably the second or third in a series of passages that we've looked at for Montag. So, to, so take that for what it's worth, right? Um, that might sound like a loaded question, but pieces of that question kids have already answered before. So what we're really focusing on is how does the author use figurative language, right? To show us who Montag is and how he's changing. So what I would do is I would give students at least two things specifically that I know are there. So the personification in that last part where he blames his hand for doing all of the thievery and the hand had a mind of its own. That's like the literal definition of personification. I would say, let's find personification first and work through that together. So we'd find it, we'd talk about how it works, how this is an example of personification, what is it revealing about Montag? Like, what does that mean about his character that he's blaming a body part of his to have done the deed uh, rather than taking responsibility for his own brain? Um, to, you know, to me, like, and I would definitely let kids talk first, but I think it's just this like reluctance to change. His body is ready. His body is ready to, to move on and be actively a different person, but he's still like really afraid to do that. Like his mind is not there yet. So he blames through personification, his hands. It's so interesting. Cause that's what our students do too. Oh, that's even what like my own kid does. He's like, I'm like, why did you throw that? And he's like, I don't, my brain told me to do it. And I was like, mm. <laughs> what does that work? Actually, does that, that's not how it works. So, so, I mean, that's, that's, I think where I would start. Cause I think that that's the low hanging fruit. It's, it's the most, I think, direct and clear example of how Bradbury is doing this. Um, and then I would probably scale back and say, all right, so I see, uh, imagery, I see irony and I see, uh, what else did I talk about in the beginning? I see motif right? I talked about the motif. So I might give them that list depending on the skill level of your kids and say, now I want you guys to work in pairs. I want you guys to find an example of the motif, an example of the imagery, an example of irony or one of the three or however you want to scaffold that and then let them work together to find a device and discuss how it, or well, what it, what it is, how it works and what it's doing to reveal characterization. So I want them to go through that whole string of questions little by little by little. And so by the time we're done annotating this thing, both as me modeling it at the front of the room and then the kids doing it together in their pairs and coming back together to the whole class, they will have lots of things to consider when they're writing for homework or for the next day, an answer to that question. How does 
right? How does Bradbury use figurative language to amplify the complex characterization of Montag? So it's a lot to discuss in a tiny space in our podcast, but I hope that that kind of gives you an idea of where to start. Um, so I think that's, that's really where I've gone. It's okay to get a little messy. It's okay if it doesn't go perfectly. Um, but I think what's important, some like big tips I'd say, I would reiterate a small manageable passage is key. I would reiterate that modeling what you want kids to do when they move on, either independently in pairs or in groups, do something together first show them what you want, and then let them on their own. And then finally, make sure kids know what the end result is going to be. Um, I always treat close reading as a preparation for some kind of writing. Um, so, and I also try, like I said earlier, to ask the same question multiple times, but I just change the passage. So this question, I might not have them looking at figurative language every time, but I am looking at characterization every time we do this. So it's really just that narrowing the passage, narrowing the skill, and helping kids practice the same thing over and over again as you progress throughout the novel. And the best thing is, and we talked about this in episode 11, every kid in your room can do this who's, who's there, right? If they read all of part one or all of part two or all of part three, doesn't matter how much they read, they're here in the moment, they read this passage, they can perform this task, they can practice this skill. Right, talk about equity, right? Like it like, because it's, I like to do close readings. A lot of times I like to do cold close readings. Like I like it where they haven't seen it before at all. There is a completely even uh, game. What am I trying to say? Playing field. There we go. Sports analogies are not my strong suit. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, all of the things you just said and the thing that I like to pepper in the most, especially if I'm doing this towards the beginning of the year, beginning of the year. Actually, you know what? That's a lie. Anytime. Is I like to model like looking or feeling like you're doing something quote unquote wrong and showing how many different interpretations there can be and talking through my own interpretations and then debunking some of my own interpretations so that they can see they might initially get one. And I'm going to talk you through this when I go through my little passage, but like I might get one interpretation of something, but then when I keep going or I keep thinking it through or I talk it through with someone else, I'm going to realize that initial one was a little bit off, right? Or like had a shade that wasn't quite accurate to the text and I, I like bird walked a bit, right? I, I like doing that because then students feel a little bit more comfortable trying and like putting themselves out there. So I'll go ahead and get started with mine. So the passage that I chose for today's little exercise is from a pretty new book. It's called The Grace Year by Kim Leggett, and it came out in October of 2019. And we are recording this now in August of 2020. So this book hasn't even been out for a year, but it gained really quick popularity. It was like an instant bestseller on the New York Times list. Um, and it is a dystopian YA novel. And it has been likened to The Handmaid's Tale and other such sorts of stories. But like I plan to use this book as a choice in Lit Circles this coming fall with my sophomores um, because it's not as intense. I mean, it's intense. Don't get me wrong. It's got good literary merit as well, but it is nowhere near as graphic as or like as intense as The Handmaid's Tale. Um, but I digress. So the goal for my mini lesson that I'm going to kind of walk you through here is that students will be able to identify 
the driving traits in the main character, Tierney, through the author's use of dialogue in juxtaposition with the character's inner thoughts, the main character's inner thoughts. So the passage that I chose is from the beginning of the book. It's from the first chapter. It's from the exposition, which is often a really great place to start because, you know, like the author does a lot of work getting to know characters in this part of any novel or short story for that matter. So if you look at the exposition, if you're going to dive into characterization, that's a great place and then maybe revisit it later in the novel or the short story, whatever it is that you're working on. That's something I like to do. It's that whole like repetition thing that we like to talk about, bringing things back so that students get good at the strategy and good at the skills and not having to like learn new things through different activities. Um, But this passage I chose first and foremost because of the personal connections that students can make to the relationship in this conversation. It is a conversation between Tierney, our main character, and her mother. She's getting ready for what's called veiling day before which is the day before these girls are set out on their grace year and I'm not spoiling anything when I tell you the premise of the novel is that girls in their 16th year are considered to be dangerous because that is when their magic comes in and their magic is something that is bewitching to men and like intoxicating to women it drives everybody crazy um, and so they have to be sent away for a year and nobody speaks of what happens during this grace year but not everybody makes it back from the year. They're sent out into the wilderness. And beyond that, the women who go don't speak of it. The men who know what happens out there aren't allowed to speak of it in this uh, society. And then whoever makes it back, they are already betrothed to who they are going to marry. And they immediately marry their husbands and they start their new life as somebody's wife. So they leave as somebody's daughter and they come back as somebody's wife. Um, And so this is veiling day. It's the day when the eligible bachelors of the town choose which girl that's about to go out on her grace year is going to be their wife when they come back, um, if they come back. So our main character is pretty rebellious, um, but like it starts, you start to see more and more seeds of that rebellious nature uh, in this conversation with her mother. Her mother is extremely stringent in this conversation about rules and that's the way that things are done and don't step outside of the line. You will bring shame to us. You will get in trouble. Very worried about those sorts of ideas and the daughter is doing a lot of questioning. So I think students are going to connect a lot to that idea of authority and like power struggle between an authority figure, um, understanding rules that seem arbitrary to a teenager. Um, It's kind of that idea like we as parents or even as just like teachers can be like, because I said so. Trust me, I know what's best. Like that kind of a thing. Um, And then feeling like conflict with somebody that you deeply love, but you still have that really lasting and like noticeable conflict that seems constant. So like I said, this is the first chapter. We're still getting to know the characters. Um, And in a very short amount of time, we learn a lot about both characters, specifically our main character, Tierney. So what do I notice here? Well, I kind of already went through that, but I really noticed that this character calls things out and questions things in a society where you are absolutely not allowed to question things, especially if you are female. Females are property. I mean, this is, you know, it's... It's not a new concept, especially for a dystopian novel, that females are property of their fathers and then property of their husbands in this society. Um, It's very, like, typical cisgender in this this way and heterocentric. Um, But it's... It's a very surprising novel for those of you who haven't read it yet. It's, it's got some really delightful moments that kind of just make you go, oh, I like this. Um, I digress, though, a little bit. Let me get back on actual point of what I'm talking about. Sorry, guys. Uh, it's... 
it's just a really good insight into this character. She knows what's good for her, but she still can't help asking these questions because she knows that things just don't feel right. They just, they don't read and they feel wrong. So I think that's something that our students can really connect with. Um, To simplify a question for my students, they would be answering a question somewhere along the lines of how does the author use this brief dialogue to develop our main character, Tierney? Um, Before getting into this, we would have gone through, I normally teach like the eight methods of characterization. um, And so we would probably have our notes out on different methods of characterization before we go through this. Um, I'm just going to read you guys the passage and then I'll get back to kind of like how I would lead students through this very, very briefly. Uh, So it is on page 11 or 12. (laughs) It's hard to tell because I use the ebook, but Tierney is preparing, like I said, for her veiling day. It's the day before she leaves for her grease year. And it begins. All the women in Gruner County have to wear their hair the same way, pulled back from the face, plaited down the back. In doing so, the men believe the women won't be able to hide anything from them, a snide expression, a wandering eye, or a flash of magic. White ribbons for the young girls, red for the gracier girls, and black for the wives. Innocence, blood, death. Perfect, my mother says as she puts the final touches on the bow. Even though I can't see the red strand, I feel the weight of it and everything it implies like an anchor holding me to this world. Can I go now? I ask as I pull away from her fidgeting hands without an escort. I don't need an escort, I say as I cram my sturdy feet into the fine black leather slippers. I can handle myself. And what of the fur trappers from the territory? Can you handle them as well? That was one girl and it was ages ago. I let out a sigh. I remember it like it was yesterday. Anna Berglund, my mother says, her eyes glazing over. It was our veiling day. She was walking through town and he just snatched her up, flung her over his horse and took her off into the wilderness, never to be seen from again. It's odd. What I remember most about that story is that even though she was seen screaming and crying all through town, the men declared she didn't fight hard enough and punished her younger sister in her stead by casting her to the outskirts for a life of prostitution. That's the part of the story no one ever speaks of. So I know it's kind of hard when you're listening to me to know like what's dialogue and what is the um, character's inner thoughts. That last little bit was the character's inner thoughts. If you couldn't pick that one up, I tried to kind of change my voice. (laughs) That's my theater training for you guys. Um, But just the like pushback that Tierney gives her mother on, I don't need an escort, I'm fine. And the mom being really worried and bringing up things from the past and girls that have been hurt in her own generation's time. And Tierney's like, mom, that was your time. Everything's fine. I like all of those things absolutely echo today and resonate with our students, um, whether it's with their parents, with their teachers, with their coaches, right? So those great connections are a great place to start. So when we read through this, we probably read through it all together, either a volunteer or I would read through it. And then we would talk about the connections that they have. What do you notice? What sorts of connections can you make personally? Where do you see connections from other characters and other stories you have read or movies or that sort of thing? I like to start with connections and then move into, okay, what do we know about this character, maybe even her mom, but we like to focus on the main character, especially in the exposition. And how do we know it, right? What are the methods? Let's start identifying those eight methods. We know a lot by the way her mom speaks to her. She has like an exasperated tone, as in this is not the first time they've had this type of a conversation. This is probably not the first time they've had this conversation. Um, And Tierney letting out a sigh and saying, mom, I know that was ages ago. That kind of like a talk back kind of a thing. Um, We can read a lot into who she is. And at the end, 
The very last sentence, she says, that's the part of the story no one ever speaks of. But it's something that she thinks every time she hears stories like that. What's not being told here? What what are we not getting? And I love that little piece because I think that it also shows students a little bit of training for that kind of a practice in real life because that's something I try to ingrain in my students in the first place. But yeah, that's we start with connections and like relationship building, that sort of a thing where they can connect with the text because once they can find a connection and find themselves somewhere in a text, then the analysis just like booms from there. So as you can see, those are two very different texts, kind of like we did in our syntax episode in episode 11. Amanda had like a text, you you did Gatsby, didn't you? Yes. I did. And I did one from Elizabeth Acevedo's uh, With the Fire on High. Here again, we've got another text from the canon, Fahrenheit, and I've got something that's a little bit less known from the Grace year, but it got really popular in the last, I don't know, what, six months or so. It's a good one. Um, But we just wanted to like really show how these sorts of strategies can be used with virtually any text. We've been doing this with fiction quite a bit, but I feel like maybe we'll start to branch into nonfiction soon if that's something that you guys want. Um, Amanda, do you have any last words of wisdom before we set our friends on their merry way? I just want to remind you guys that um, everything from today's conversation will be in show notes, including a template for close reading. You can use either in your classroom or digitally. Um, It's really simple. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Google Docs just using tables. I have a table. One column is dedicated to the passage and the other column is dedicated to the annotating and the focal points of the close reading. And really, and we talked about this earlier, consistency is key. If you want kids to become stronger, more analytical readers and stronger, more critical writers, do the same procedure every time you do this lesson. Let it grow with depth. You cannot, you can't jump into the deep end until you can dog paddle. And I know we all know that, like we know that intuitively, but I also know that you and I even veterans in our field have been, (laughs) I've been recently guilty of jumping in too fast with, you know, like getting a little too far into a concept. And so something like close reading, especially something that there are like so many deep interpretations to start small and then do the same thing over and over and over. And if you've taken our class, uh, curriculum rehab, or if you're interested in the future, I mean, we talk a lot about that in our course, like thinking about even your lesson planning in terms of templates, It's going to save you a whole lot of anxiety, a whole lot of stress, because you're thinking about now you're weak in terms of types of lessons, not stressing out and freaking out every weekend that you have to Google a new way to teach characterization. That's crazy. Find a new passage. Absolutely. It's bananas. Well, and you want, you want kids to learn the skill. So give them the same procedure each time and just do it with different things. It doesn't mean you can't do other fun things. You can, but it's really sometimes jarring to students to keep changing things up. And that was a mistake I made very early in my career because I thought it needed to be exciting all the yep. time and different all the time because kids would get bored. And the truth of the matter is that might be true, but it wasn't worth the stress that it caused me to constantly think of something new because it didn't actually help them learn more. They were just trying to relearn my rules. Yeah. It's also flawed logic because like the way that you're looking at it that way, excited the same thing. Like the logic is flawed in that you're thinking, Oh, I have to do something flashy and new every time. No, 
let them get comfortable with the same set of procedures or like strategies or whatever, what have you. And then they get to discover that's when it actually gets interesting and fun because that's when students get to take the reins and yeah. discover their own learning. And you give them more and more difficult and convoluted texts. And then they are finding things. That's what's exciting and fun. Bells and whistles and like loud music and all of that fun stuff that can come along with a lot of the things that we'll use at like the beginning of a unit or whatever is like a gateway sort of an activity. It's great, but it's exhausting and it's distracting from what's important, which is that students are guiding their own learning. So Amen. that's how we feel about that. <laughs> um, friends, please take a moment if you have one to leave us a review and a rating on iTunes. It helps other friends join us in our Brave New Teaching community. And we're going to let you guys go. Head to bravenewteaching.com for our show notes today. And as always, we appreciate you. Good luck out there, everybody. Bye.